Life Audio. Welcome to Truth Tribe with Doug Grothuis, where we seek the truth through reason and evidence about the things that matter most. We've started a series on the identity of Jesus Christ, and we did one show on who is Jesus, another one on the atonement of Christ. And today we'd like to spend a few minutes talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. What is the significance of the resurrection of Jesus? First of all, we need to explain a little bit about what resurrection means. It means that Jesus, who was a real actor in history, was crucified, buried, and the tomb was empty, and he rose again from the dead in a resurrected body. And he was seen by various people. He was heard. He was even touched. So we're not talking about some mystical or symbolic reality. We're talking about space-time history. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Now, Christianity is unique among the religions of the world in that it claims to be based on the resurrection of its divine founder. The resurrection of Christ is both a unique aspect of Christianity among the religions of the world, and also a necessary aspect, because in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, the Christian faith is in vain, Christians are misleading others, and so on. Now, Jesus told his disciples several times that he would be betrayed, that he would be killed, and he would rise again from the dead. This was a prophecy of something that was going to happen in history. Now, before we look at the evidence for the resurrection, I want to tie this in with the atonement. We did a podcast on the atonement. There's a necessary connection between the atoning work of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And I like to read from William Lane Craig's book, Atonement and the Death of Christ. This is page 229. Herein, we see the organic connection between Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection. God's raising Jesus from the dead is not only a ratification to us of the efficacy of Christ's atoning death, it is a necessary consequence of it. For by his substitutionary death, Christ fully satisfied divine justice. The penalty of sin having been fully paid, Christ can no more remain dead than a criminal who has fully served his sentence can remain imprisoned. Punishment cannot justly continue. Justice demands his release. Thus, Christ's resurrection is both a necessary consequence and a ratification of his satisfaction of divine 
justice. There's part of the logic of the resurrection biblically. Now, what about the evidence for the resurrection? First of all, if we have good evidence for the existence of God from science and philosophy, as we do, I have over 200 pages on this in my book, Christian Apologetics, and Andrew Shepherdson and I also address this in our book, The Knowledge of God in the World and the Word, then we can be rational. It is strongly rational to believe that there is a creator-designer God. And if so, then that being could work a miracle, could raise Jesus from the dead, because the claim of the resurrection is that this is a supernatural event. It cannot be explained by merely natural forces, natural factors. Now, let's talk about what a miracle is. Biblically, a miracle can be understood as what is sometimes called a special providence or a configuration miracle where God brings together a lot of antecedently unlikely factors and communicates something to someone. This is really in the category of God's providence or a sign that he could give. But there's also miracle, and this is what I want to focus on, as a supernatural event. Now, we shouldn't think of a miracle as violating a law of nature, because the laws of nature describe the way nature operates normally, given its regularities. But you see, a miracle is something above and beyond what nature can produce. So it is not a violation of natural law. Natural laws are still in place. It's rather the addition of a supernatural agency into the natural situation. You might say that history is supplemented by divine agency at various points. Now, David Hume is famous for giving several arguments against miracles. I'll just give you one and respond to that. It's the in-principle argument that it is always irrational to believe in miracles because a non-miraculous explanation is always more certain. So how do we respond to that? We admit, of course, that many miracle claims are spurious and they're not based on a bona fide miracle. There's some kind of a hoax or a fraud going on. But if there is a God, then God might work a miracle. So we have to consider the probability. Now, the general probability of any kind of a miracle happening, let's say a supernatural healing or someone rising from the dead, is low. So the general probability of anyone where I work at Denver Seminary of running a four-minute mile is very, very low. However, if we were at the Olympics, then the probability is much higher because that kind of a situation is called conditional probability. So when we consider the miracle claim that you find in the four Gospels and really throughout the Holy Testament, that Christ rose from the dead, we're talking about not just anyone rising from the dead. That is extremely unlikely. That's the general probability, but rather the conditional probability given the sorts of documents and witnesses that we have. And with the New Testament, we have documents that have been accurately transmitted over time. This is called the manuscript evidence. And the writers of these documents were either eyewitnesses or those who consulted eyewitnesses. They were written only a few decades after the events they described, and so on. And we don't just have one or two or three witnesses. We have the four Gospels, we have Paul, and the writings of Peter, and so on. So, yes, the probability of anyone rising from the dead is extremely low, and we typically won't believe it. However, if we have good 
evidence to that effect, the conditional probability rises. The possibility, I should say, of this happening is increased significantly. All right. One other objection. Sometimes people say that in the Bible, you have ignorant pre-scientific people and they are mistaking natural events for miracles all the time because they don't know how nature works. Well, let me read you something from C.S. Lewis. If there ever were men who did not know the laws of nature at all, they would have no idea of a miracle and feel no particular interest in one if it were performed before them. Nothing can seem extraordinary until you have discovered what is ordinary. So, for example, Joseph, the husband of Mary, doesn't have to be a medical doctor to know that her being pregnant without a man is extraordinary. It's a miracle. So you have to have some general understanding of the way nature works to even have the concept of a miracle, but you don't have to be a scientific expert about biology or physics or anything else. So let's get directly to some of the positive evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. You can take at least two approaches. You could take what's called, or what I call, the maximal fact approach to the resurrection of Jesus and simply say, given the strong historical evidence for the New Testament, multiple witnesses written by people who knew what they were talking about, plus the fact of some extra-biblical corroboration for what is said by the Jewish writer Josephus and other writers like Tacitus and Suetonius and Thallus, that the New Testament should be taken as true in what it affirms. And right at the center of the New Testament is a claim that Jesus died, he was buried, the tomb was empty, and he rose again from the dead and appeared to many people over a 40-day period. Right there, that's an extremely strong argument for the resurrection of Jesus. And you add to that a good basis of natural theology that miracles can occur, and you have a two-stage kind of argument for the resurrection. Now, there's another kind of argument that you can give which is called the minimal facts approach. People like Gary Habermas and William Lane Craig have used this approach, and I give it in my book, Christian Apologetics. That is, we find some undisputed facts that critical scholars of the New Testament hold to, and then say that the resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation for these facts, or gives the best account of these facts. So, let's consider four that Jesus died by crucifixion. That's certain from history. There's no possibility that he simply appeared to die and was later somehow revived. That's called the swoon theory. The Romans knew how to crucify people. So he was killed by the Romans in about 33 AD. We know that. Secondly, the critical scholars, no matter how much of the New Testament they accept, believe he was buried in a known tomb, Joseph, Joseph, of Arimathea. Moreover, most critical scholars hold to the empty tomb, that somehow the tomb was later found to not have the corpse of Jesus. Now, of course, this is only a necessary and not a sufficient condition for the resurrection, because there might be an empty tomb and then some other explanation for why it's empty than the resurrection, like the disciples stole the body or the Romans came and took the body. Now, we'll find those are very improbable. But then the fourth minimal fact that critical scholars tend to accept is that a number of people over a period of time claimed to have experienced the resurrected Jesus. This is called the post 
mortem appearances of Jesus. Moreover, we have women portrayed as being some of the first witnesses of the resurrected Christ. Now, that's significant because women in that day were not accorded a very high level of credibility as witnesses. So if you're going to create a false story about a resurrection, you probably would not include the women, but we find that in the record of the Gospels. Now, we also have, in terms of post-mortem appearance evidence, the testimony of Paul. Paul's letter to Corinth, the first one, was written probably in the early 50s, and even very liberal scholars will admit this is a bona fide letter of the Apostle Paul. So he famously says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Now, Paul doesn't mention the women there for some reason, but the women are mentioned elsewhere. So, add to these formidable facts some other uh, well-established facts, and that is the early disciples were transformed from being defeated and cowering, many of them, to being people who are willing to bring the gospel message to the world, even against the powers that be. We see that in the book of Acts. We also know the early church worshipped Jesus. The scholar Larry Hurtado has written much on that. Now, if Jesus had claimed to be God and said he would be resurrected and had not believed to have been resurrected, then why would the early church continue to regard him as God and to worship him? You also have circumstantial evidence, part of historical reasoning. What about the rite of baptism in the church? In in Romans 6, Paul says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into the death, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his, Romans 6, 4 through 5. So that is part of the ritual system. That is a right of the early church. It presupposes, it presupposes the resurrection of Jesus. Same is true of the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 36 written by Paul. So until he comes, Paul is saying he died and he rose again and he's coming again. So when you put these facts together, the biblical answer is that Christ rose from the dead in space-time history. This explains these facts. And the other alternative theories, the naturalistic theories, do not explain the facts that these historians, these critical scholars, agree on. So we would need several naturalistic theories to cover the facts that I've mentioned, particularly the four facts, the first four. Now, how would we explain this? What about the empty tomb? 
people might say, well, the disciples stole the body. Well, they would have had neither the means nor the motive to steal the body. Why would they want to steal the body? They knew he was dead. To what purpose would they steal the body? Uh, Moreover, the tomb was guarded, so they wouldn't have had the means to do so. Right. Now, some people might say that someone else stole the body. The Romans stole the body. Well, why would they steal the body and leave the tomb empty? Why would the Jews of the day, the religious establishment, steal the body and leave the tomb empty? Because if they leave the tomb empty and Jesus' disciples are going out there saying he rose from the dead, that's not something they endorse. Because the Jewish establishment and the Roman establishment were against Jesus. So why are they going to steal his body and let the idea be propagated that he somehow rose from the dead? Doesn't make any sense. Now, some people say, well, maybe we can explain the empty tomb without the resurrection. And now we've got to explain the supposed post-mortem experiences. Well, how do we do that? The most popular explanation now is the hallucination explanation, that Jesus did not physically leave the tomb and appear physically, bodily to his disciples, but this was based on, this belief was based on a series of hallucinations. Well, there's part of the problem right there. Do we have many people having the same hallucination at different times in different places? Moreover, Paul talks about Jesus appearing to 500 people at one time. We have other cases where Jesus appears to several disciples at the same time. Hallucinations are not group phenomena. Okay? So, the other explanations, and I haven't gone through all of them, simply don't work. The simplest and most cogent explanation is that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead in space-time history. He was killed by the Romans through crucifixion. He was buried in a known tomb. Tomb was empty, and then many people claimed to have seen him after he died. The best, the simplest, the most cogent explanation for those four facts, let alone the other facts that I added, is that Jesus, in fact, did rise again from the dead. And let me read you something that affirms this from 2 Corinthians 4, 13-15. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. And this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. So there's the Christian confidence based in the historical resurrection of Jesus. And I'll end with 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, this is Apostle Paul again, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And he says that after a long discussion of the resurrection of Jesus. So the resurrection of Jesus is a necessary and unique feature of Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus follows from the atonement, theologically, and we have strong evidence from the New Testament all of it, or we could simply isolate certain parts of it, these four minimal facts, that Jesus, in fact, rose again from the dead. So that puts him in a unique category of all the founders of religions, of all people in the history of the world. So this has been Truth Tribe with Doug Grothuis. We've given a 
Very short, apologetic for the resurrection of Jesus. If you want to see more, please look at my book, Christian Apologetics. I have a general chapter on the meaning of miracles and look at the issue of miracles happen today, which I think they do. And then we, in the next chapter, give a much more detailed, much more nuanced argument for the resurrection of Jesus based on historical factors. So if you'd like to know more about me or my ministry, go to douglasgrothuis.com. We've recently revamped that webpage. Or you can see about the classes I teach and the program that I lead at Denver Seminary at denverseminary.edu. Thank you for listening to Truth Tribe. Truth Tribe is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Hello, hello, Quinice Petway here, co-host of the Your Daily Bible Verse podcast. Are you someone who loves to take a deep dive into God's Word, one verse at a time to explore His will for your life and desire to draw closer to Him? If that sounds like you, I'd love to invite you to head over to lifeaudio.com and search your daily Bible verse to tune in and subscribe for daily inspiration, life application, and spiritual transformation through the in-depth exploration of God's Word.